Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Thanks. Thank you, Sophie. Um, One of the things that's true of Waterstone, and if you've been around uh, our church for any length of time, you know this is true, is that Waterstone as a community and as a church, um, when hard things happen, when big things happen in our culture, when our culture shifts in different ways, good or bad, Waterstone always uh, tries to lean into those moments and address those things. We think one of the callings of the church and the people of God is to address things that are happening in the world and in our culture with a biblical lens and a Christian worldview, um, calling the people of God to follow Jesus in in those spaces. And many of you know that this week uh, the Supreme Court made a ruling to overturn uh, Roe, and we thought it appropriate um, over the last few days the leadership uh, has come together, uh, elders and leadership team uh, under Larry's guidance to address um, just some of the things that are going on in our culture around that ruling. Um, and so I want to read a statement from the leadership of Waterstone uh, in regards to Roe being overturned. At Waterstone, because of our belief that all people everywhere are created in the image of God, we have a deep commitment to the value and dignity of all human life. For us, protecting life is a biblical justice issue. This is why we believe it is critical for our church to engage with issues of the unborn, racial reconciliation, the immigrant, and equality for women. These commitments reject the political binary that our culture often attempts to force us into, and these values often transcend the values that we might see in the culture war. We recognize that this issue, the issue of abortion, sits at the intersection of so many different things, the political, the pastoral, the prophetic, and the personal. And there's so much nuance and brokenness. Many of us likely do not all agree on the nuances of this issue, but one of the chronic griefs of humanity is that we are forever trying to heal our broken world with broken tools. And many today woke up relieved because of the end of Roe. It means that this is the beginning of the saving of many lives, the littlest of the least of these. Many others woke up today worried and frightened because the overturning of Roe did not erase their concerns for women's health and upstream issues of equity, access, and justice. In fact, this ruling has probably intensified those concerns, and those are concerns that the leadership of Waterstone shares. We lament that we live in a world which many feel abortion is the only tool available to them, not because they are callous or immoral, but because they are overwhelmed by a lack of resources, powerlessness, and physical peril. Now, Waterstone, we believe that these two truths can exist together. Sometimes it can feel as if people are more committed to their cause than to the people those causes are supposed to help. And at Waterstone, we choose to reject that passivity. Overturning Roe is a victory, but it's not the victory. Victory for followers of Jesus comes when human life is served, dignified, and loved sacrificially, as Jesus does and calls us to. 
Now that Roe has ended, we pray that there will be prolific access to health care, child care, adoption, living wages, education, and job opportunities that will support the lives of people in desperate situations. The church is called to support life-giving and dignity-promoting resources for vulnerable people at all times. And as followers of Jesus, now is our time to intensely advocate, pursue, and embody what Scripture calls true religion, to care for women and children of our world. We often feel that to support both the equality of women and the dignity of the unborn can feel like a lonely place to be in our culture. But we believe Jesus calls us into such lonely places. And so may we, the people of Waterstone, lead with hope and love. May we keep showing up with humility and empathy as we strive to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to his neighbor. His kingdom come and his will be done. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we know uh, in our community, in our church, there are people from all walks of life. God, that, that we have always said at Waterstone, we strive to be a people that unity around you and what is essential transcends uh, things that happen in the cultural moment. Um, God, many of us feel very strongly about issues uh, like the one that is, is dealt with in Roe um, and the Supreme Court ruling. God, we pray for unity for our church and for our body of Christ and that we may go forth uh, together to love our neighbor as you have called us to. God, we pray for those who are hurting, who are desperate, who are frightened, uh, that you might come in with compassion, that we would be your hands and feet of love and justice and mercy in a world that is so desperately in need of it. God, we pray um, that your justice would continue and that your rule would come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. So today, we are wrapping up a series on Habakkuk. For the last month or so, we've been studying this ancient prophetic book uh, from a person named Habakkuk. We took a break last week, however, to celebrate VBS. Uh, we had an amazing week with almost 400 people in this room, uh, kids and volunteers, and we had 49 uh, children decide that they wanted to make a commitment to follow Jesus, which is just a huge... I mean, that means... I, yeah, well... If you think about that, that means that because of the volunteer work that was going on, because of the worship that was taking place, almost 50 children had an encounter with Jesus where he became more real to them and in their lives, which is just amazing and phenomenal. But as we thought about the calendar, um, talking about Habakkuk, because if you've been with us for the last month or so, it's a little intense. Um, lots of judgment, lots of pain, lots of suffering. Habakkuk is a prophet who's asking very big questions and is very depressed. And the celebration of VBS and Habakkuk, we just couldn't quite reconcile the two. Like, yay, kids! Also, everything's awful and falling apart. Like, we just couldn't get there. And so we took a break, and we're going to hop back into it today and finish up with Habakkuk chapter 3. 
And we're really excited. Uh, after we wrap up this series, we are going to move into a new series uh, on family and friendship and relationship and marriage called Flourishing, Finding Connection in a Lonely World. Don't worry, it's not a new dating app. Um, it is simply uh, a way for us. We think many of us are experiencing loneliness um, and isolation. We live in a very transient city where people come and go. Most of us don't have family that live with us. And so we're going to be looking at how the church and was actually designed by God to be a community of family connection um, and friendship in a world of loneliness. So really excited for that. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to wrap up Habakkuk. And if you remember, as we were going through Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk is asking some very big questions of God. He shows up um, in a, a prayer session, a conversation with God, and he is very confused by God's plan. He looks at the people of God and he says, there is injustice, there is oppression, there is evil, there is this hypocrisy. God, how can you tolerate such things among your people, the people that are supposed to be following you? And he's really concerned with the state of the people of God. And God comes to him and says, I have seen what's going on. I hear your prayer. Don't worry. I'm going to do something about it. And Habakkuk's like, okay, great. What? He says, I'm going to send the Babylonians to judge your people. They are going to annihilate you. They are going to wipe you out. They are going to take you into exile. Their judgment and wrath is coming because of the evil that has existed among you. And Habakkuk's like, what? That's not what I was praying for. Like, can't we just have revival? Can't we just have something go well? Can't you just kind of bring us back and have, have our hearts turn to you? He doesn't understand God's plan. He doesn't understand how God could use an evil people to distribute justice against his own people. And if you've ever been in that situation where you're just wrestling with God about his plan and the circumstances of your life and where you don't know what God is doing, Habakkuk is an invitation to engage in those conversations, to ask the hard questions, to wrestle with God. In fact, the name Habakkuk means wrestler. It's tipping us off to this fact that, that much of the faith of walking with God in life is wrestling and, and taking the hard questions, the big questions, to God. But Habakkuk also invites us beyond doubt and hard questions and wrestling and, and suffering. And what's remarkable about the person of Habakkuk is he comes with these big questions and these doubts and he begins his book by saying, how long, O Lord, must I see injustice? How long must I cry out to you and you not answer? But he finishes his book with this statement, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. See, how can a man who, who on the worst day of his life, given the worst news by God, that his people are about to be annihilated, that, that there's a, an empire coming for them to wipe them out and take them into exile. How can a man on that day respond and say, I will be filled with joy and I will rejoice in God my Savior? How is that possible? Because I don't know about you, but most of my prayer life does not look like that. And to understand how Habakkuk can go from this questioning, this doubting, this wrestling to a place of rejoicing, is I think we have to understand a little bit about the nature of joy that he's talking about. 
And then we have to look at his reasons, how he can, can maintain and hold on to joy in the midst of his circumstances when his world is absolutely falling apart. And maybe, maybe that can be true for us too. And so to begin, let's look at Habakkuk's statement on joy and discover a little bit about what joy is not and what joy is. Because what we have to understand is joy is not simply just optimism. Are there any optimists in the room? Are you willing to admit that you're an optimist? You can raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. Yeah, that's great. Uh, any pessimists in the room? You can raise them high. Yep, okay, you are my people. Actually, I like to think I'm kind of like a, a, a poptimist, um, but a little bit of both. Like the glass is half full, but it's probably cracked. Like that's kind of my outlook on life, right? Um, so it's a little bit in between. You can coin that phrase if you want. Don't have to give me credit. Um, but, but some of us are optimists. And, and what sociologists and psychologists, they've done a lot of surveys about people who are optimists and pessimists. And, and what they found is that if you are an optimist, good news, is that you are way more likely to live a healthy and longer life because you are lying to yourself about the reality of the world. And, and you're just living in some sort of disillusion, and so you're happier, and you're going to live longer because you've just kind of like tricked yourself into thinking everything will be all right and work out at the end. And, and pessimists, we, uh, we don't really live as long, and, and we're much likely to be less happy, uh, but we're going to be right about the future nine times out of ten over the pessimists. And so they've just discovered that, that so much of whether or not you're a pessimist or an optimist is really the neurology and, and biology and, and kind of character traits about how you were raised and, and, and kind of innate to who you were. But what I see so often in, in the Christian worldview is this pressure to kind of conform to optimism. That, that because we love Jesus, we have to believe that everything will be okay all the time. And I came across this term a few weeks ago called spiritual bypassing. And even if you're not familiar with that term, you've probably experienced it. It's that moment where your life is falling apart, you are frustrated, you are full of doubt, question, wrestling. You've become unemployed, or your marriage is disappointment, or, or your kids aren't walking with the Lord anymore, or whatever number of things are going wrong in your life. And you're sharing that with someone, your small group, a friend, over coffee, and their response is, hey, don't worry about it. It'll all work out in the end. God is good. You don't need to worry. And we kind of spiritually bypass the struggle and the wrestle and the doubt and the questions. And, and we, in all reality, are attempting to avoid pain in our lives. And we think that that is what it means to follow Jesus, that because Jesus loves us, we just need to be happy all the time. But that's not what joy is. Joy is a very different concept altogether. In fact, it, it transcends those categories of optimism or pessimism. And what we find in Habakkuk is, is the joy he is talking about is not just a, an illusion or, or a, a forgetting of reality or an ignoring of his pain and suffering, but the opposite. Habakkuk leans into the reality of his circumstances, and it is because of that that he is able to experience joy. You see, what Habakkuk teaches us is that joy is a discipline. He doesn't spiritually bypass the pain of life or in his world, but he's honest about it. This is what he says in Habakkuk 3.16. He, he's talking about this knowledge that God is coming in judgment and wrath and that his people are about to be wiped out. 
And, and he says that I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Habakkuk is experiencing a panic attack. This dude is terrified about what is about to happen to him and his people. And yet he's able to have joy. Notice what he says next. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. There's this discipline that Habakkuk has of being honest about his fear, his anxiety, his pain, his questions, his wrestlings, his doubt. And it is in that honesty, I'm not skirting past those issues, that he leans into the discipline of joy. It's actually in the discipline of joy, the, the cultivation of joy in our lives, of reminding ourselves the reality of the world that allows us to more fully experience the joy of God, which seems really counterintuitive. Like most of us would like to avoid pain, ignore pain, and think that's the key to happiness. But Scripture tells us it's the opposite. And if you're ever confused about joy, it's said that you should go to C.S. Lewis. Because so much of his theology is about joy, and, and his relationship with God is anchored in joy. And so I, I kind of went on a deep dive of what C.S. Lewis had to say about joy this week, and it actually led me to someone else, one of his mentors and friends, J.A.R. Tolkien, if you're pretentious, or Tolkien if you're an American. And he is the author of Lord of the Rings, the, the father of kind of all modern fiction and fantasy and, and fairy tales. And someone asked him one time, what is the power of fairy tales? Why are people so drawn to these stories of fairy tales? And he wrote an essay in response to that question. And what he said was fascinating because he says that the reason those stories have so much weight and power to them is because there's always this turning point in the story. There's always this moment where everything feels desperate. That, that sorrow and grief and failure and pain feel insurmountable. And the power of the fairy tale is that it turns on a dime. And there's some sort of grace that's extended to the characters. And that they experience joy of deliverance because of the pain and suffering and failure that they endured. There's something about our relationship with, with suffering that enables us to experience joy more fully. And this is how he closed that essay. He says that this balance between experiencing suffering and evil into joy is because it gives us a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, just as poignant as grief. See, there's something in these stories, there's something about leaning in to pain and suffering that allows us to more, more fully experience the joy that God invites us into. And for us, this discipline of joy, it, it's not, I don't want to say that joy is simply a choice. I, I think that's too simplistic. And, and I think there's lots of external factors that uh, affect us. We know from mental health and neurology and biology, that there are a lot of factors to whether or not we can experience happiness in our lives. And, and sometimes there are blockers to, for us experiencing joy and happiness. But I think what Scripture would say is this joy beyond the wall of the world. It is something that we can experience, something we can cultivate in our lives by being honest about our circumstances. 
And for us who are we're New Testament believers, we also have the power of the Holy Spirit within us that says that joy is something that the Holy Spirit produces within us. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And the truth is that this line about joy beyond the walls of the world, it has so much truth to it because joy comes from beyond this world. So many of us, we feel like joy is tied to our circumstances and our happiness and whether or not we're getting what we want. But the second thing we have to understand about joy is that joy is not circumstantial because it comes from something beyond our circumstances. And most of us know this on some level. I mean, we've probably been in church long enough or even just read enough psychology and, and self-help books to know that, that joy and happiness have to transcend our circumstances. But most of us struggle daily to live that out as true. I mean, it is a struggle to believe that, that just because things aren't going my way, I can still experience joy and happiness in this world. And many of us live in that tension and struggle. And in his book, A Strange New World, Carl Truman explains that one of the reasons we are so miserable as a culture is because we are addicted to what he calls a cult of happiness. And in our culture, happiness, it often comes from getting what you want. And so if you get what you want, then you're happy. If you don't get what you want, you won't be happy. And it's a pretty simple concept. And, and I see it every day in my daughter who's three years old, right? Like if she gets 15 marshmallows, she's happy. If she doesn't get 15 marshmallows, if she only gets 14 but wants 15, then she's very unhappy. And it's pretty cute for a toddler, but most of us don't grow out of that stage, do we? And it's a lot less cute on a 35-year-old or a 40-year-old or however old you are. And we live in this tension where if we don't get what we want, if our circumstances don't work out the way that we want, then we're unhappy and we're frustrated. And what Carl Truman says is, is the trick of, of why this is such a, a fragile existence for us is because what happens when what two people want for their happiness are actually in conflict with one another? So what if I want for my happiness is, is contrary to what you need for your happiness, then all of a sudden we have conflict because neither one of us can be happy. We're blocking one another's happiness. And, and what happens when you expand that beyond an individual scale to a, an entire culture, an entire country where thousands of people are longing for happiness in a certain way that, that blocks other people from their happiness? And so we see all of this tension and frustration and anger over us not getting what we want. And this is what he says to that reality. If your happiness and your joy come from your circumstances, your joy and peace will be very fragile indeed. And see, what is remarkable about Habakkuk's joy is that his joy is not defined by his circumstances but actually defies his circumstances. This is what he says to close this chapter. He says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Now what he is laying out is, is kind of this complete scorched earth policy that the Babylonians have. They are about to take everything from them. And so when he says, and though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, what he's literally saying is, is there's no luxury left. Fig trees, they produce figs, which were the dessert of the ancient world. And, and grapes on the vine produced wine. All of the good things, the luxurious things that we enjoy in life are going to be taken away. And he goes on to say that though the olive crop fails, and in those days, uh, the olive crop had two purposes. 
It was used to light lamps in the darkness, and it was used to cook their food. And he goes on to say, the fields produce no food. They have nothing to eat. And there are no sheep in the pen. In those days, they didn't really eat sheep very often. They were more used for clothing, for wool, and to clothes. So he's literally saying, if there are no luxuries left, if we have no food, if we are sitting in darkness naked, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. What Habakkuk is saying is if everything comes undone, if he loses everything, luxury and necessity, he will still rejoice in the Lord his God. I do not know about you, but that is not my prayer life. And most of the time I am praying, God, do this. God, show up here. God, do this. Relieve me here. Provide deliverance here. And if God doesn't show up in those spaces, then I am angry and frustrated because I'm not getting my way. It's my kingdom, not God's kingdom. It's my will, not God's will. But what Habakkuk shows us is there is something defiant about the joy that God offers us. That joy is not dependent on our circumstances, but defiant to them. Joy offers us something better than the cult of happiness because it is not dependent on whether or not you find a parking space. It is not dependent on whether or not your marriage is is going well. It is not dependent on what the doctor says to you. And and, and hear me, it is not in in ignoring those things that we find joy. Again, it, it is leaning into them. What's fascinating about Scripture is that it never denies that we will suffer. And when we suffer, Scripture never diminishes that we suffer. It never makes light of our suffering, but it never allows us to be defined by our suffering either. And what Habakkuk teaches us is that suffering will happen, yes, but despite our circumstances, we can experience joy in this world. And so joy for Habakkuk is not this false optimism and it's not based on his circumstances. His joy is a discipline he cultivates through being honest about his circumstances and that defies his circumstances. The question for us is, how do we get that? Like, how do we experience that type of joy that Habakkuk says we can have? I mean, this is a man who is about to lose everything and makes the choice to rejoice and to say that he will have joy despite his world falling apart. Is that even possible for us? And I think if we want to experience that kind of joy, if we want to be able to rejoice in all circumstances, then there's two things that Habakkuk tells us that we need to remember. And this is where joy is a discipline. He says, remember that God saves and remember that God strengthens. So we can rejoice in all circumstances when we remember that God saves and God strengthens. So Habakkuk, he closes this book in verse 18 by saying, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. It is a title for God that God shows up and delivers his people. God shows up and does what God always do, which is deliverance and salvation. And he reminds himself of the things that God has done to deliver the people in the past. 
And so this entire chapter, all of the weird statements about God like asking for arrows and, and being angry with the streams and, and people having spears put through their skull, graphic I know, is Habakkuk reminding himself of God's deeds of deliverance. This is what he says in, in verse 2 and then in verse 13. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember your mercy. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one, to crush the leader in, of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. You see, Habakkuk remembers what God has done in the past to anchor him in the circumstances of his present. That he can hold on and have joy Whatever is going on in his world, because God has proven himself over and over and over again. And so Habakkuk is praying and singing about things like the Exodus or Jericho, where God showed up and delivered his people. And he says, because God did that in the past, I can trust and have faith that God will do that again, whatever my circumstances uh, on Steffi's side of the family, she has a cousin who I think has one of the coolest jobs in the world. Uh, he is a field test driver for Audi and for Land Rover. And, and so his entire job is to take these amazing cars and just push them to the limit, beat the absolute crud out of them. And so he takes Land Rovers into the wilderness and, and drives through all sorts of crazy terrain. And he, he takes Audis out onto frozen lakes and sees how they respond to driving on just pure ice. And the whole purpose of these field tests, of pushing them to the limit, is, is so that he can say, and the, the manufacturers, the creators of these cars can say, yeah, this car can do what we says it can do. And, and all of the advertising around these vehicles is not false advertising. It has been proven in these field tests. What Habakkuk is remembering in this prayer is the field tests of God's deliverance where God has proven himself over and over and over again. See, so many of us, we have this notion that, that faith is kind of just this blind leap into darkness hoping God will catch us. But, but faith, the, the opposite of faith is not knowledge. It's sight. It's seeing that God has proven himself, trusting the evidence and, and trusting that without reservation. That is the faith of Habakkuk and remembering what God has done and the ways God has proven himself is what anchors him in all circumstances so that he can have joy in this life. It's this eternal perspective that Habakkuk has that no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how bad things get, we can hold on to joy because we know that the God who has delivered before will deliver us again. And one day we will be delivered from all brokenness and death and evil. But, but Habakkuk's joy is not just based in some far-off, distant reality, some, some future hope. He also says that, that God strengthens him. And, and that idea of God strengthening him is something that is very present in his world that day. So this is the last verse of the chapter. He says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to tread on the heights. See, not only has God promised to deliver us, 
but God has promised to be with us. And so no matter our circumstances, we can rest assured, we can have trust and faith that God will not leave us. That whatever is going on in our world, God will be with us. There were a number of studies done a few years ago about the effect of trauma on people. And these um, psychologists, they were trying to determine what enables some people to overcome trauma, to, to move past trauma, to grow in trauma, and to actually have, have trauma uh, make them better. And, and what's the difference between that group of people and the people that trauma affects deeply, devastates, and leaves them entirely broken? And their hypothesis in this study was that uh, basically it, it depends on what kind of trauma you've experienced. And so if you've experienced deep trauma that has some sort of stigma attached to it, that, that was their hypothesis, then, then that would you leave you in a place where you are more broken than better. And what they found is, is that hypothesis was completely wrong. It, it did not depend on, on what type of trauma you experienced. The key indicator of whether or not you would come through it was whether or not you suffered alone or you had a community of people suffering with you, walking with you through it. One of the psychologists, he said this, he said, trauma is what happens when severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. You see, for, for many of us who have experienced trauma and suffering and hardship, the beauty of what Scripture tells us over and over and over again is that we do not experience those things on our own. That God has promised to be with us in them and has promised us a community of people, flawed as we may be, to walk alongside us in those moments. And so Habakkuk leans on and remembers this knowledge that God strengthens his people, even in the hardest circumstances. And he leaves us with this beautiful image to close this prophetic book, this image of a deer climbing the mountains and overcoming vast terrain. And, and I chose a picture of a, of a mountain goat because it fits better with our context. You're like, that's not a deer. You're right. It's a mountain goat. Have you ever seen one of these things scale a mountain? I mean, they are standing on like these sheer cliff faces and able to climb on what looks like just a flat wall. And, and what we see in this image from Habakkuk is, is not that in suffering we are overcome, but, but because God strengthens us, because God promises to deliver us, we can actually thrive in those settings, that we can overcome those spaces and we can climb to the highest heights. In those days, the, the highest heights were the places of safety and security that we can overcome the suffering, the trials, the trauma of this life and experience safety in this world because God has promised to deliver and promised that he is with us and that he will strengthen us for the journey and that we can arrive safely on the other side. And we have to remind ourselves of this truth as we go through this life, that we can rejoice in all circumstances when we remember that God saves and God strengthens. And I wonder for you if you can look back on your life and remember when God has shown up in that kind of way in your life. 
What markers have you had where you can look back and say, this is where I saw God was with me. This is where I saw God deliver me. And for all of us, even if we may have trouble in some of those spaces, we can all look back on this side of Scripture to the the cross and see the depths that God was willing to go to to bring deliverance, to, to tell us that He was with us. And so even though we live in, in this intermediate space between God's deliverance and when we are waiting for him to show up again, we can still have joy in all circumstances. And so to close the, the book of Habakkuk, I'm going to close with two things. And one is, is this chapter three is, is really a song that was meant to be sung corporately for people to remind themselves of the mighty acts of God, God's faithfulness in the world and to his people. And so we're going to sing one of those ancient songs, one of those hymns that many of us know that reminds us of God's faithfulness, reminds us of the way that God shows up in our lives and in our world so that we can have joy in all circumstances. And then we're also going to invite you into a time of prayer and anointing. And at Waterstone, many times we step into these spaces where we invite God to move mightily in our lives through prayer and anointing. And so if you are in a place where you are experiencing the hard parts of life, the suffering, the trauma, the distance, you are wondering whether or not God is present, I would invite you to come forward to one of these stations where we have two stations in the back. You can just receive a simple prayer and blessing where someone can can mark your hand or your forehead with anointing and just pray a simple prayer over you, or you can share what's going on and receive specific prayer for the struggle that you're facing. But it is in coming together, reminding ourselves of what God has done for us that we can experience the joy of deliverance in this life. So would you please pray with me as we respond. Heavenly Father, God, we come together before you in this time expectant for you to move. God, we thank you for the invitation of Habakkuk that when life is not going the way we want, we can ask hard questions. We can pray our pain. We can come to you with our doubt and our confusion and our anger. We can take the fight to you and you receive all of it. God, we also thank you for the invitation of Habakkuk that that we don't have to stay in those places, that it's actually in those places that you can shape and mold and call us to something more, that we can experience joy of life with you despite our circumstances. God, we pray and ask that as we come to remember your faithfulness, as we pray for your intervention in our lives, that your presence would rest heavily in this place that we could experience your goodness and your grace and your mercy. That we would remember that you are a faithful God. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.